Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. It is Thursday, the 17th of February. I am Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network. We would love it if you would visit with us online at myfaithradio.com. Check out all the great resources we have available for the building up of your faith and the sharing of the gospel with others. If you've wondered to yourself, you know, how, how could I extend the gospel today to another person? It may be as simple as sharing with them something that feeds your soul, sharing with them a place, a a resource like Faith Radio, where they can get their questions answered, where they can be encouraged, where they can um, encounter Jesus and his people. So there you go. Be a missionary today simply by sharing the Faith Radio app or a particular program with someone else. So we have been, uh, we are reading through the book of Acts during the month of February. If you um, would like to join us, you can sign up to do so at myfaithradio.com. Today is the 17th of February, so we are in the 17th chapter. But I wanted to share with you um, something that happened at our dinner table last night, because one of the things that we do um, as a family, or have been doing this month as a family, uh, or we're doing the reading. So last night, we read Acts chapter 16 as a family at the dinner table. And There's a lot of drama in Acts chapter 16. We talked about it yesterday morning, but I wanted to just share a couple of observations that, you know, were made by the people around my dinner table, which, you know, includes Jim, my husband, and Eliana, our 18-year-old, very, very bright um, and like real Christian. I'll also say that. She's the real deal. Um, Matthew is my special needs 16-year-old. Um, and so the stories, the drama of this particular chapter certainly captivated his attention. And he had lots of questions. So the gospel has been extended by Acts chapter 16 from Jerusalem to Judea, now to Philippi. Um, it will go from here to what you and I know as Western Europe. So if you've ever wondered, like, how did the gospel get to me as a Western person? It, it, you know, the Acts chapter 16 story is significant. It's relevant. It's important. And so when you think about your own life, because this was the question that, you know, came up at our table, like, how did the gospel get to me? How did the gospel get to me from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria? How did it get to me? It's a lot of centuries between Acts chapter 16 and February 16th, 2022, or February 17th today. How do you trace back the gospel in your own life or maybe in your own family? So um, that got us talking about who shared the gospel with Jim, who shared the gospel with me, how we share the gospel with others and our responsibility and duty to do so. And, and one of the questions that sort of emerged in my own heart and mind is who shared the gospel with my grandmother? 
my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, Robina, um, like in my early recollections, she's like the first real Christian, like living it out moment by moment person who I could identify as an authentic Christian. And that's not to say that my parents aren't Christians, It's, it, but it is to say that my grandmother was distinctively Christian. Um, and and I wish I knew who shared Christ with her. I wish I knew her personal, you know, come to Jesus testimony, but I don't. And so um, I encourage each of us and all of us today, encourage you today to share the story of your testimony with someone else. Write it down so that it would be preserved so that generations from now, somebody will be able to look back and say, oh, that's how the gospel got to us. That's how the gospel got to me. That's how the gospel got to grandma. That's how the gospel got to grandpa. Um, That's how the gospel extended by the great commission of Jesus from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria, to the ends of the earth and to me to me, to me. And let's circle back around today. And if they're still living, let's thank the person who shared the gospel with us. All right. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge. This is Faith Radio. Ben Johnson joins us every Thursday morning. And we survey some of the headlines of the day. Our goal is to bring the mind of Christ to bear on the matters of the day. And so so let's do that together. Thanks for including me in your day. Ben Johnson and I will be right back. We're going to talk about prayer and politics and politicians and what's going on in Afghanistan. Lots of lots of news to bring the mind of Christ to bear upon. We'll be right back. This is my right. Ben Johnson is back, among other things. He is a media reporter at The Daily Wire. You can read what he's writing and interact with him at dailywire.com. You can also find him on Twitter, where he tweets at The Rights Writer. Ben, welcome back. Good to be with you as always, Carmen. Thank you. Let's um, let's do a status update on how people are feeling. This is a feelings question in Afghanistan. We have um, We have done sort of the horrible status of life situation in terms of a massive percentage of the population facing starvation this winter. Um, And we have surveyed the situation in relationship to um, women in particular, women and girls being uh, having their rights stripped away as the Taliban um, applies very, very strict Islamic rule. And we have taken note of the fact that Afghanistan now leads the world watch list in terms of places where Christians are persecuted. And so it might seem strange to ask the feelings question, but somebody did. And so um, why don't you tell uh, our listeners how people in Afghanistan are feeling today? Well, can we can we cue up the song from the 70s by Morris Albert, Feelings? Um yeah, that's that's really what uh, NPR was looking at. Uh, they they asked this question, and according to NPR, they say that Afghans feel safer but are less hopeful under Taliban rule. Uh, similar the similarly, uh, Radio Free America has said that, and Radio Free Europe has said Afghans are losing hope 
under the Taliban rule. And you've just listed all the reasons why it would be a hopeless place to be. 23 million people out of a population of 39 million are facing starvation, a million children facing malnutrition. Uh, you've mentioned Christian persecution that's going on there. And, you know, just the, the crackdown on human rights that is taking place as a result of this Islamist interpretation of uh, Islam, fundamentalist Islam, taking over a country and imposing uh, sixth century Sharia law on an entire country. Now, the, the reason that uh, NPR says people are feeling safer is because obviously there's, there's not a full-blown war going on as there had been before. This is the consolidation phase. The Taliban has been in charge for six months. They've been consolidating their power. They've been, uh, according to uh, some of these sources, reopening certain jobs that have been closed. But uh, all of this, uh, I, I think, uh, tends in a very negative direction for anyone who is stuck behind, was used to, uh, for the last 20 years to living under a U.S.-led regime that allowed women to go to school, that allowed people to work and wear Western clothing and have their own ideas, uh, and uh, to some extent provided some small level of protection for religious minorities, particularly Christians. All of that is disappearing, and uh, I, I think that people are sort of sinking in, uh, resigned to their fate for the next many, many years. Oh, there's just so much we could say here. I think the trade-offs that uh, people are willing to make to have a sense of security or safety, um, those are trade-offs that we don't often give a lot of thought and attention to as as 21st century uh, Americans. I mean, I don't think everyone thinks much about um, how much of their own personal security they're giving away when they click the terms of service box on a new app or on a website or agree to, you know, have a website uh, mine information or follow them on their location um, settings. I mean, like, right, we, we don't even think about the freedom we're exchanging um, or we're giving away because we want some convenience. And I think that what... What I see in the Afghan people, particularly the ones who are have their eyes wide open and understand what is coming as the Taliban not only consolidates, but then um, actually begins to fully implement Sharia law as part of their rule there, um, the trade-offs are going to be significant. It's not just going to be hunger. Um, it's going to be every variety of freedom. Yes. I mean, we had a brief interregnum basically between Islamist-enforced uh, fundamentalist Islam in the nation of Afghanistan. Uh, we paid dearly for it. The Afghan people paid dearly for it. And when it's all said and done, they realize we're going to head backward to where they have already been 20 years ago. Hmm. All right. I want to um, get to this um, really, really crazy story out of Alabama. Um, this features a family... Um, and the tragic death of a young woman at the center of this story. But um, what what I think um, Ben and I are going to try to pull the threads on here is technically these are a bunch of Christians, but they're certainly not behaving in a way that would bear out evidence of Christ um, in their public witness in this story. So this is the story of a young man and his fiance. She tragically died. Her father um, forbade the fiance's attendance at the funeral and has now had him arrested for littering for placing a planter on her unmarked grave. 
All of that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Hannah Ford was 27 years old, engaged to be married to Winchester Hagens when she was killed in a three-car crash in January of 2021. Um, And this is the story of what is now going on uh, amidst a bunch of people who claim to be Christians, but whose public witness is absolutely deplorable. I don't have any other way to say it. Ben, um, what's going on here? This is one of the most bizarre stories I have ever read. Uh, what's what's happening? Uh, as you mentioned, Hannah Ford died. Her father is a pastor. Her father, before her death, very much disapproved of this relationship. Uh, Hannah Ford, by the way, was deeply involved in Republican politics. Uh, she was uh, a very uh, well-known, well-liked, uh, and very thoughtful young lady. She decided to continue the relationship despite her father's approval. They had set a date. Uh, she kissed her her fiance goodbye, and then ended up in a car accident, and she died. The uh, father purchased a plot, and of course the fiance uh, came and placed flowers there. The flowers began to disappear, so he made a large flower box, and it's beautiful. There's a picture of it online. It has roses. It has pictures of the two of them all around it, and uh, Winchester uh, he says that he was driving off to preach at a church. When he got pulled over by police and they summoned, they handcuffed him, arrested him and served him with a warrant for littering. <laughs> because apparently under Alabama law, the, the grave is private property and the father decided to press charges because he still disapproves of this relationship, even in death. OK, so um, for people who didn't recognize or realize that when you buy a plot to have a loved one uh, interred. That is a piece of real estate. It is a piece of private property. Now, sometimes that is regulated. What you can what you can place upon it, what you can do with it is regulated by the particular cemetery, right? There are guidelines or restrictions or, you know, you can only put these things or use these these vases or whatever. In this case, it's a it's, you know, it's a wide open Alabama cemetery where other people have planters with flowers. Um, and so this is not unusual in terms of what's going on in this particular cemetery. But this um, this pastor who lost his daughter, and that is a horribly tragic reality, but he is now making a public witness of having this man who would have been his future son-in-law um, arrested and prosecuted for littering. Um, because he placed these uh, this this planter and these flowers on um, on Hannah Ford's at this point unmarked grave. So I really want to highlight here the um, the the public witness nature of this because you know this is in the Washington Post. It's not like this is just in some little local Alabama paper. People across the country are reading this, and in it they're reading. Um, reverend over and over and over again, because that is obviously how um, Mr. Ford is re- referred to, because he is a pastor. And I, I just have myself, I just am thinking to myself, Ben, this is just not the way Christians ought to be going about relationships. And it's certainly not the way that we ought to be going about making a public witness. Um, it just, it's just, bring, it just brings shame to the name of Jesus. Well, you know, of course, we read in the Scriptures that love is patient, love is kind, 
love suffers wrong and uh, does not uh, respond in kind. We, we know that we're supposed to be long-suffering toward our brethren, and uh, that is a, a way of showing God's forgiveness to each one of us because of our long record of sinning and trespassing against him. And yet, uh, and, and of course, the Apostle Paul says that Christians should not take another Christian before uh, unbelievers in the court of law, uh, even if they are suffering wrong for the most part. But when it comes to going to the law because someone was trying to honor the woman he was going to marry, uh, that's as thin as you can slice Christian charity. Uh, this is a terrible witness. And uh, regardless of all of the other dynamics here, I, I really want to focus in. You know, the, the law may be that this is a, a private plot and he has the right to regulate what goes on his daughter's grave. Uh, and I don't know what legal remedies there may be available to uh, Mr. Haggins. But let me say this. As someone who is involved in clerical ministry myself, uh, let me let me just say our belief uh, in, in my Christian background, our tradition, is that God loves everyone. And at some point, God's love is going to conquer all the hate of the world, and everyone will be bombarded with the ever-present love of God. And for those who love it, that will be heaven. For those who hate it, that will be hell, because they will continue to reject the love that God gives them, even for eternity. We believe that the very beginnings of hell begin in this life when we reject love. And if that's what's happening with this pastor, Pastor Ford, trying his best to reject the love that his future son-in-law still has for the woman that would have been his wife, he's well on his way. Yeah, so this brings me to, you know, I, this is a Pray the News um, headline for me because I added all these people to my prayer list because I now know them by name because their names are, are listed here in the article, which leads me to the next conversation that I want to have with you, and that is this intersection of prayer and politics and politicians and the appropriate use of prayer by politicians or in the political sphere. Yeah, and of course, uh, the use of prayer and uh, Christian, Christianity churches, uh, pulpits as political props is as old as America itself. Uh, it, it goes way back. I remember uh, there was a story about um, Adlai Stevenson, who ran for president twice against uh, Dwight Eisenhower, saying that uh, his, he called up his ex-wife and told her one Saturday night to have the children ready. He was going to take them to church. And she said, that's the moment I knew he was running for president because he never went to church otherwise. So it's it's that kind of idea that uh, continues to pervade our political landscape. People use prayer. They will say thoughts and prayers. Uh, there have been entire political seminars about how to use faith language to promote your political agenda. And I think all of this goes in line with Matthew 6, which is Phariseeism. The Pharisees loved to do this. They showed off how pious they were but it was for their own private gain so that they could have their own reward here on earth. And politicians are experts at this. It's not a partisan issue. It cuts very clearly across all parties. Uh, and I think anyone who uses prayer to promote a political agenda is uh, very much risking their own salvation as a result of, of politicizing this. So on the other hand, we want to be very careful not to reject the idea that we should be praying about these things, that politicians mm -hmm. should be leaning on their faith, because that's the only way you can get through the office, according to Abraham Lincoln. He said, this office drives a man to his knees. It would drive a woman to her knees. It would drive any occupant to rely upon steady rock that uh, can bind up every life, that can give uh, foundation to our entire country. 
So I, I think that we need to walk a very careful walk. And that's where programs like this come in to show what the person is saying and what their policy would do and whether those two have a bridge that uh, would, would include the gospel between them. So I'm uh, in, in the conversation about how I pray for people in um, positions of political leadership and power. I am renewing my prayers for Francis Collins. Uh, everybody recognizes him from the NIH, but he is now, at least for a temporary period of time, the new um, primary science advisor to the president. And uh, whatever people might think of Francis Collins and his practices at the NIH, he is a believer. And so, you know, I'm, I'm praying for him as a fellow Christian in a particular position of influence. Um, and I'm, I'm praying for him with open hands and asking God to, you know, bless him with, uh, with opportunities to share, um, share the gospel and to advance the gospel cause in, um, in a room, in a place, in a building, um, and in a relationship or in relationships that, you know, I certainly don't have access to other than through prayer. So when we think about um, prayer and politics and who we're praying for, let's be praying by name today for everyone, the president on down. Let's be praying um, the news related to what's happening on the uh, on the border of Ukraine with Russia and the Russians. Let's be praying today for the advance of the gospel. Um, let's be praying today for pieces of legislation that God's will would be done, that bad legislation would be blocked and good legislation would proceed. On and on and on and on and on. Let's be praying today for people who are in positions of influence and authority over us in government. Ben Johnson, as always, thank you so very much. We value our time together. You guys can find Ben at the Daily Wire. That's dailywire.com. You can also follow him on Twitter where he tweets at the rights writer. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. And this is Faith Radio. read um, widely, and I seek to um, pull threads out there in the cultural conversation, try to pull those threads here, pull them together, and have conversations with you um, that are about the matters of the day and how the mind of Christ applies to those, so that you and I, as believers, can walk our faith out into the world that God so loves and do so in ways that honor Jesus. Like, I want you to be the most well-informed person on the matters of the day, and not just informed in terms of the facts, but informed in terms of um, the spiritual hook for the conversation. Like, it, it, there are opportunities for you and I as Christians in the culture today, um, no matter where we are in terms of what we perceive to be relative influence in in our position, we have influence. There are people in your spheres of influence today, and you are the Christian God is sending into those conversations. Like, you're it. Like, in a game of tag, you're it. And so if you've ever wondered, like, what's Carmen actually trying to do? Well, what Carmen is trying to do, what I'm trying to do is to come alongside you in a conversation and say, hey, here's what's happening in the culture, here are the things people are talking about at the level of the news. 
And here's where I see opportunities for you and I as Christians to pull a thread or tie a knot or make a connection so that people might have one of those aha moments where they might go, oh, I didn't see that. Or that really does make sense. Or that leads them to ask another question like, well, tell me more. Or I don't I don't really understand what you mean when you say that you see God in the midst of that or a, a reference to the Good Samaritan being biblical. Like people don't know all of those references. So why bring all of this up now? Because I read a piece um, in the Associated Press, posted on, on the Associated Press. And for me, it is a clearly like Christian storyline story, even though that's not the story that Tim Sullivan is really telling, right? So Tim Sullivan is a reporter for the Associated Press, and he's going to join us next for a conversation about a very provocative piece that he wrote about a small town in Minnesota um, where people sitting right next to each other, living right next door to each other, have two very different visions of America. And yep, they're all Christians. We'll be right back. So joining us today is Tim Sullivan. He is a journalist with the Associated Press. I am lifting up to your attention a piece that Tim wrote for the AP. It's entitled, In One Small Prairie Town, Two Warring Visions of America. Tim, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Benson, Minnesota is, um, you know, is the town at the center of this conversation. Why don't you take us to Benson, Minnesota? Benson is this uh, little town on the rural western Minnesota prairies. In a lot of ways, it feels like a place stuck in time. You go into the cafes there, everybody knows each other. You go into a bar, the bartenders will put down somebody's drink before they even order. People are are linked by generations and jobs and school. And even if everyone doesn't know one another, they, you know, there's probably something linking them together. But the, the town and the county as well have shifted pretty dramatically politically over the last, since 2008. They voted heavily for uh, Obama in 2008 and voted heavily for Trump in 2016. And this is traditionally a, a socially conservative, but still a very democratic area that, that shifted very strongly towards, uh, towards the right. And it's, you know, the, the town is really divided. I mean, people have, I think like many little places across the country, there is now these divides on things like, did President Trump win the election? Is COVID-19 something we genuinely have to worry about? Are the vaccines safe? Is the media telling us the truth? These issues have, have you know, they, they really are, you know, I, I hear stories of, of families torn apart, and churches where people are arguing, and it's, you know, we've seen a lot of this across America, and it, and it plays out even in towns where, where everybody knows everyone. So at the center of um, uh, of your piece on Benson, Minnesota, are two characters, Reed 
Anfinson, who's the publisher editor of the local paper, uh, the Swift County Monitor News, and a Lutheran pastor whose name is Jason Volter. They happen to be neighbors on uh, Benson's 12th Street, but they have very, very different um, understandings of what's happening, and they would be on um, on different sides of many of the issues that you just uh, identified. I thought that, um, in particular, the fact that this little community of 3,000 people still has a local paper, a weekly paper, um, that sounds a lot like little communities that I'm aware of. And sometimes what's reported in the paper, um, you know, people totally love and value because they get, you know, all the local information about what kid won what award and, you know, what, you know what's on the bridal registry for, you know, the, the two families that are both been here for five generations and their kids are getting married. Um, but also on the editorial pages in particular, an increasing percentage of the community feels like the local paper um, is not aligned with their views. And that's what you expose in this piece as well. Yeah, and in, in some ways, uh, the paper isn't aligned. I mean, Anfinson is, he doesn't think of himself as a liberal, but some of his views are, are certainly liberal. Um, and the county has become more conservative. Um, but what I found, while those often cause the most anger, I mean, it's, it's actually his news reporting that caused this huge division. Now, he is just doing what a journalist does. He's reporting COVID numbers going up in, in local hospitals. He's reporting what local doctors are saying about the vaccine. And some of his readers, like his next door neighbor, um, Pastor Walter, I mean, see him as, as a propagandist. I thought that the word truth was an interesting one and the way that not only you identify that these are individuals who understand but they both understand the importance of truth. They both highly value truth. It was curious to me that their sourcing for truth seems very, very different. That um, that for me was a bit of a, I don't know if it was so much of an aha moment, Tim, as it was it, uh, reinforced what I suspect happens a lot. And that is the information sources that we lean on and the siloing, like, right, the the places that we increasingly turn over and over and over again for news and information, as those information sources reinforce the same ideology, we begin to imagine that that is the truth and anything contrary to that must absolutely certainly be a lie. Um, it, that's what it feels like you're identifying here. It, it definitely is. And I think, you know, I'm someone like Pastor Walter, who is a, an incredibly likable, thoughtful man. He's very well read. He's very smart. But a lot of his reading are on websites that give a totally different version of reality on things like the vaccine than, than what you see in the mainstream press. And I mean, I, I talk a bit in the story about how the mainstream press has had trouble, these little newspapers and mid-sized papers holding onto their conservative readers who see them as, as an extension of, of fake news. And Antonson, the publisher, his wife, who was very politically um, much more conservative than him. She actually raised some very good points. She said, you know, the media can talk down to rural America. You know, there aren't enough Republicans in newsrooms. And, you know, those are really good points and are part of these things that even if, while the mainstream media, while we are reporting the truth of this stuff, 
there sometimes are things out there that that alienate conservatives. And it is something that I think the media has some has to think about this. We're talking with Tim Sullivan. He is a journalist for the Associated Press. Uh, I am reflecting with him on a piece published by the AP entitled In One Small Prairie Town, Two Warring Visions of America. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen, and we'll be right back. Continuing our conversation with Tim Sullivan from the Associated Press. Uh, the dateline of the story that we're reflecting on is Benson, Minnesota. You may know right where that is. You may have been there. The title of the piece, In One Small Prairie Town, Two Warring Visions of America. Tim, you referred to um, to Shelley, uh, who is the wife of the uh, the editor, of the publisher of the local newspaper. She's his business partner, but also his wife. I really thought that, you know, she... She exemplifies a lot of people who I know. You know, we may be living in a house with somebody who views things differently than us. We're trying to maintain relationships in our community. Um, and and it's a difficult balance to strike. It is, although in some ways I see their relationship, with, which is clearly so caring. They met one another after both had kids. They were both divorced and they have this wonderful marriage. Yet their political views are are pretty sharply divergent, and they look past that. And and this is the kind of thing that, I mean, sadly, I think that too many liberals in America know only liberals. They don't, you know, conservatives are this other. Too many conservatives know only conservatives. And so when they look at liberals, it's this, this sort of almost other tribe out there. And when you see sort when you see two people who openly disagree about politics sharing a house and sharing a life there's there's actually something poignantly you know really appealing about that so one of the um sad observations that you make uh and i i'm pretty sure i'm remembering it as a quote by um you know by one of the i think it was by the pastor you know that uh, that the newspaper man is not going to come to his church and he's not going to buy his newspaper. We can still treat each other as neighbors. Um, I, as a Christian, had a view to that that, you know, you as the reporter would not be making. Um, But I will tell you that raised that raised a heart of concern in me for the Christian witness in the community, because I you know, my neighbor is a significant reality in terms of um, in terms of what the Bible has to say about that and my treatment of neighbor. And so that was one place in your piece. I just wanted to make you aware that as a Christian reader, um, my my heart really exploded at that point. And I thought to myself, um, there's an opportunity here for Christians in these communities to uh, to press forward in um, in important ways into these conversations. So I'm just making that observation about the piece and um, and wanted to tell you just how much I appreciated that. You talk in here uh, about the observation that the pastor makes that this is a dark time. I'm wondering if in your conversations in Benson, there did feel, it did feel like there was, a, you know, like a darkness on the horizon, or did you experience it as a community where, you know, there is a lot of positive, hopeful joy? You know, it's interesting, especially talking with conservatives. I, I was struck by the, the sort of 
the, the, the dark way they saw the country, you know, that they didn't trust the media, they didn't trust the government. Um, many of them felt that the last presidential election had been rigged. Many felt that there was major political involvement in the epidemic and the vaccines. And yet, interestingly, when I, I can remember saying to one person, I'm, I said, you know, you have a really dark version of this country. And he looked at me kind of surprised and said, no, I don't. And I think in his mind, you know, he still sees himself as a small town guy who was very patriotic and proud of his country. But if you looked at the list of things he believed, it, it was a very pessimistic view of this country. And yet he didn't see it that way overall, which was really interesting and something I didn't go into in the story. Maybe I should have. Well, no, I think I think that when you um, when you allow conservatives in particular and probably Christians, um, if you were to, you know, sub out that category um, and asked us to reflect on the culture there are there's going to be a list. You actually make the list in your piece. You know, there's going to be this list of things where we're going to say, you know, we don't think that the redefinition of marriage or the gender um, identity questions being raised in the culture or I mean, it, the list would be pretty long where it feels like the trend is in a direction away from what we perceive to be. Um, the best. All right. So like, you know, the best positive possible future. But if you then said, well, what's your view of history? How do you see things unfolding? You know, that's going to be a much more hope-filled, um, you know, I get it that the times in which we live are seasons and on and on and on. So it doesn't surprise me that there would be points where even, you know, even if you and I were talking at a personal level, there would be places where you would hear me say things that would lead you to believe that I'm pretty pessimistic and yet on the flip side, if we were having that same conversation, but I was thinking about a different timeline, right, you know, all of history, then it's going to be very bright. It's going to be very hopeful. Right. And I, I, I see that. I, I think what surprised me more wasn't the sort of, I, I mean, they're definitely, when it comes to cultural issues, I mean, these people really feel adrift. They feel that America is changing in ways that they don't like and that often they don't understand, you know, things like trans rights to them. It's just, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, why are we talking about this issue? It's more the structural things about America that, that shock me. You know, if you don't believe your government is telling you the truth about major things like a presidential election, that seems very deep-seated. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's not just a division of like how I see one issue, but this is, this is the nature of your government. And that is the kind of thing that, you know, once you lose faith in your government, that's a, that can mean many things. I spent a lot of time as a foreign correspondent. I, I saw what happened up close when, you know, certainly dramatically more, you know, nothing like what's going on in France. So the places that, you know, descended into the Civil War, in part because mm -hmm. people did not trust their governments. I think that the, um, you make, really good connections in your piece about um, displacement or, you know, the changing nature of rural communities in terms of demographics. Um, and I thought where your piece ends leads into um, exactly what you're talking about right now. The only reason to ask a question, which it was astute to ask, but the only reason to ask a question whether or not a person carries a weapon in their own community 
is because they would feel like the time might come that in their own community with their own neighbors, they might have to use it. And um, it was an astute question, and it's a very dramatic, sober place to end the conversation that a soft-spoken man would say, uh, you know, that he does not have a weapon, but he knows where one is if he needs it. That, Tim, for me, is the heartbreaker, right? That, that is a very, very sober, heartbreaking statement that we have reached, we have arrived at the point where the American fabric is so frayed that a person would even consider the possibility of ever needing a weapon to be raised in their own community against their own neighbors. Um, and so um, I want to thank you for going to Benson and bringing us this story, because I think this is what is happening in small towns all across America, and we have to start talking about it. Well, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me on to talk about it. Absolutely. That's Tim Sullivan. You'll want to uh, follow him. He writes for the Associated Press, the piece we've been talking about today, In One Small Prairie Town, Two Warring Visions of America. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, um, a little shout out to Jack, who's listening right now, driving around in Minnesota, um, says he keeps top of mind um, that, yes, even as society is frayed, I'm going to remain a good citizen and be a light. Amen. 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 And amen. Um, We are. We're going to be salt. We're going to be light. We're going to be the people who continue to advance the gospel uh, in the same ways that those who have believed on Christ before us, advance the gospel, which takes us today on this February the 17th into the 17th chapter of the book of Acts. And we have here um, uh, Paul and Luke and uh, Timothy um, and Silas moving, uh, moving around on what we would call this missionary journey as the gospel is advancing. And they pass through Amphilius, and Apollon, Apollonia, uh, Apollonia, mm-hmm. Apollonia, and then they come to Thessalonica, which we all know how to say because we have the letters to the Thessalonians, known as First and Second Thessalonians. And I suppose if Paul had written a letter to the people at Apollonia, I would know better how to say that one. There you go. Um, And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, this is in Thessalonica, um, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And this is what he reasoned. He explained and he proved that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Uh, And so uh, they are persuaded. They, um, They come to Christ. There is massive conversion. This chapter goes on to talk about um, what happens to Paul as some grow jealous of him. It goes on to talk about what happens to believers, new believers, who put their faith in Christ, um, but whose communities, you know, reject those who embrace Christ. We then get um, Paul uh, and Silas in Berea. And, uh, and then in Athens. And I want to um, just pause for a moment in this section of Acts chapter 17 to reflect on what it means to reason with people, to reason with people in the marketplace all day long. 
um, to to bring the mind of Christ to bear in every situation, in every location. Um, the people in Athens are described as very religious. They're intellectuals. They know a lot, um, but they don't know Christ. And so what does it look like for you and I, like Paul, like Silas, like Timothy, like Luke? I mean, go down the list. What does it look like for us today to operate in a marketplace of ideas where Jesus is one idea among many that people are considering? And how do we get them to consider Christ? How, how are you and I today, as ambassadors of the King and the Kingdom, how are we going to enter into conversations with others today that get them to the place and the point where they will consider Christ? Well, first, we have to know what they're thinking about. And so we have to ask them, you know, hey, what's on your mind? What are you thinking about? How are you thinking about the matters of the day? Here's how I'm thinking about those same matters. Where do I get my ideas? How has my mind been um, been transformed and formed in this particular direction? Well, let me tell you about Jesus, because my mind is conformed to the mind of Christ, and I am bringing the thoughts of Jesus to bear on the matters of this day. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is Faith Radio. Dr. Peter Kapsner joins me next, and we're going to talk Thanks about Thanks for listening to baptism. this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way, you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.